Welcome to the Indian Ocean World Podcast. Hello, welcome to a new episode of the Indian Ocean World Podcast. My name is Archishman Choudhury, and I'm a postdoctoral researcher at the Indian Ocean World Center, McGill University. Our guest today is Professor Onu Jale, an anthropologist and an assistant professor at National University of Singapore. Professor Jale researches on environmental anthropology, climate change and mental health, eco-psychiatry, and migration centered around the decolonization of the Indian subcontinent in 1947. Today, Professor Jale will tell us about her research on the Sundarbans Delta, which is the largest delta in the world sprawling across India and Bangladesh along the Bay of Bengal. Professor Jale studied the Sundarbans for her doctoral thesis, which was published as a monograph in 2010, entitled Forest of Tigers, People, Politics, and Environment in the Sundarbans. Without much further ado, Professor Jale, welcome to our podcast and thank you for being here. Thank you so much for inviting me, Dr. Choudhury. And uh, thank you to the Indian Ocean World Center for having me. Um, So if I may uh, start off with a broad question, would you please briefly tell our listeners about your research? How did you develop an interest in studying the Sundarbans? I mean, what drove your curiosity to understand this deltaic region forested with mangroves and tigers and crocodiles, which sprawls across India and Bangladesh? So <clears throat> I grew up in Kolkata, which is about 100 kilometers away from uh, the Shundurban forest. And um, my parents actually uh, worked in the region. I went to the Shundurbon when I was seven. I went to a village on the island of Bashonti. I saw uh, a few, um, you know, venerations of uh, Mabon Bibi, for example. I also came across Jishukitun. I came across all kinds of stories about uh, that area, not just forests, not just tigers, but also uh, decoits. Uh, In those days, it was uh, very frightening because you heard all kinds of stories about decoits coming to people's houses, but uh, they only attacked rich people's houses. So, uh, so these, these stories, you know, and also we lived, I lived, I grew up in Shalkia, which is on the outskirts of Kolkata in Howrah. And uh, one of our neighbors, it was, a, it was a very mixed neighborhood. One of our neighbors uh, lived uh, next to us, but actually was from the Shundarbon and used to work there. Uh, so he used to also tell us a lot of stories. His children were about my age. And um, that's when really I got interested. And then as I grew up, um, I went as a high school student to the Shundarbon on a nature study camp. What happened was in the uh, late 80s, the government realized that um, uh, people were getting, uh, you know, tigers in the Shundarbon have always been known for being man-eaters, even Bernier. Okay, 
who went there in the 17th century talks about the man-eating tigers of the Shundorbon and Bernier feels fears that he might be attacked because uh, you know the Laskars on his boat told him that the tiger would go for the fattest person and uh, you know being this good Frenchman uh, was was the stoutest and he he writes about this in his uh, in his books so these tigers have always been known to be man-eaters humans are kind of seen as one of the tiger food uh, that is available and it's it's you know it's horrible to say so but um, this is how this is how it has always been um, understood and a lot of scientists in in the 80s were trying to understand why this was so <clears throat> some people said that perhaps um, you know because tigers mark their um, territory with their pee with their urine and so because of the fact that the tides wash off uh, the contours of islands you know that the, the, the whole island is underwater uh, really the, the forested islands during high tide the water the tiger cannot really demarcate its territory and therefore swims everywhere so this is one theory another theory is that they lack fresh water um, and so they need human blood, human flesh for a sort of dietary balance. And this is why also the government in the 80s <clears throat> had started putting gur, jaggery, you know, uh, in the forest and had started digging freshwater ponds for the tigers to sort of uh, stop killing humans. And one of the um, one of the ways in which they decided that um, you know they could perhaps protect people because they 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 noticed that the tiger would would usually attack from the back and would turn the spinal cord okay so it's a big blow at the back of the head and the head is turned the the person dies instantly so they started to distribute free masks to people in the villages saying, hey, before entering the forest, just wear these masks because the tiger will be confused and will not know, <clears throat> you know, where to attack and therefore will not attack you. And I remember at that, uh, you know, I was in class eight or something and um, at that um, nature study camp, the scientists told us, well, these masks um, aren't working that well because people here are so superstitious. They all prefer going to the forest with a tiger charmer and they prefer worshiping Ma Bon Bibi and therefore they do not wear these masks or, you know, and, and this is why um, the numbers of people killed, which was quite high in those days, is still as high. So I really was left with the question, why do these people refuse to wear masks? And what is this whole mask business? So this was something that stayed in my head. I went to the London School of Economics for a uh, master's. At that point, and this was in the late 90s, uh, Professor Philippe Descola from Paris was visiting and he had just published his book in 1996 called The Spears of Twilight. I think it still was in French at that point. And he really was thinking along, how do we talk about the non-human? The language of Western modernity and, and Judeo-Christian tradition of animal restricts that creature 
to a particular identity? How do we go beyond that identity? How do we, for example, take into account people in the Amazon who think that the Jaguar is related to them and that they can be Jaguars and Jaguars can be humans? And so, a lot of this had interested me. And when I went to the Shundorbon, people kept saying, Onu, if you want to write about us, you need to go to the forest. And at some point I got a little impatient and I said, listen, I am, because in those days, the only people who wrote about the Shundorbon were biologists, zoologists, and actually mental health experts. But those were sort of the three categories. So <clears throat> I said, you know, I'm not interested in your tigers. I'm not interested in the forest. I'm interested in you guys, in your history. And that's what I've come to write. And they kept saying, how will you write about us if you don't know our tigers? And I said, listen, you know, I'm not a tourist. And they said, you cannot write about us if you don't know our tigers. And so I said, what is so special about your tigers? You know, tell, tell me more, what, what is it? And that's when, you know, I was finally open to sort of listen to what they had to say about this creature that I had no idea about. And slowly, you know, it started dawning on me that I should really try and understand the space in relation to the ways in which people speak about tigers here. It was a creature that was compassionate. Um, and, and, and so, you know, this, they, they sort of narrated a lot of their own stories through stories about tigers. So, for example, they said, you know, um, we are actually refugees. We are people that um, have come from the other side, have been brought here by the British, have um, fled from riots. But, you know, the tigers in the Shundorbon have kind of had a similar fate. They have been hunted all across Southeast Asia, and they were on this long march trying to find a suitable home. And from, they, were, they were being, you know, decimated and, and killed off everywhere. And finally, they came to this godforsaken place and everybody left them alone. They were, they, they were, you know, they were happy here. So when we started arriving, they understood what it meant to be refugees, to be, to be unwanted uh, creatures. And, and this is why we understand our tigers. And then the geography of the, so not only did they believe that they shared a certain history, but they said, you know, the geography of this place has made us all similar kind of creatures. We are all cantankerous. This cantankerousness would come very, very often in conversations. It's the water, the air here. You can't help it. It's our tigers. Look, where do you find man-eating tigers in anywhere in the world? This is the only place where you find, you know, creatures that are so cantankerous. And it's we can't we can't help it. It's just because of the kind of place we live in. So I had a lot of unanswered uh, questions. And um, also, you know, you sort of wonder who these people are and uh, the way they are depicted. You know, I think it's the kind of final frontier for many kids growing up in Kolkata. Thank you, Professor Jilly. It's a great story to hear. Uh, before I move on to ask you a few more questions, I would just like to explain to our listeners, a decoit is an 
Anglophone term of the Bengali word for burglary or robbery, it's dakati. From dakati, so in the British pronunciation, it became decoity. And then it found its way to the, to the dictionary of thesauruses as decoits. So decoit is just a burglar or a, or, or a robber, if, you, if you'd so call, uh, call it. Um, I had been reading some of your research while I had been preparing for this podcast, and I was struck by one of your arguments where you say that the Sundarban Islanders differentiate between new tigers and old tigers. So for them, the old tigers uh, look at the islanders as brothers and it's vice versa. But then uh, you had interviewed a family who had lost a son to tiger attack. And they explained that, you know, it's not the old tigers, but it's the new tigers which kill humans. Uh, Would you please tell us about this genealogy well, how do, how does it start old tigers versus new tigers is this something uh related to colonization of these islands and clearing of the forest i'm, I'm sort of trying to connect the dots here did that follow up uh in the post-colonial narrative of development and politics which meant more forest clearing uh the prawn collectors with their mosquito nets and different forms of state inter- intervention including road construction, railway construction, and so on. Would you please tell us about uh, how did this genealogy start? Uh, Sort of a distinction between old tigers and new tigers in the Sundarbans. Thank you, Achishman. So the the distinction really for me, as I uh, understand it, did not really come with colonialism because this place was um, inhabited, you know, for example, the island where I did uh, fieldwork was only inhabited about a hundred years ago. So the whole southern part of, you know, the inhabited region of uh, the Shundarbun, the region just above the forest was cleared between 200 and a hundred years ago. And you know, people were brought in from different places, uh, very often people who had debts uh, to zamindars, um, people who came from Chotanagpur, people from all over, really, they were brought here to clear the forest. And, and, and we know that people in the Bengal Delta have always been moving. Okay, and a lot of them used to live on boats even. So people have been um, happy to find opportunities and very often do. Um, So it wasn't so much colonialism. What struck me, I was coming back one evening with a group of young men from a theater where we had seen a play. And this young man was saying, you know, so what, what are you doing here? So I said, you know, I've, I've come to write about your history. And he says, you know, aren't we just tiger food? What, what brought this understanding that people, a lot of people in the Shundarbun shared that they might just be tiger food. I came across the Murichapi massacre of 1979. So I was there in 99. So it had been 20 years that that massacre had happened. And in many conversations, people kept talking about that massacre. A lot of their relatives had come from Bangladesh and had been in Dondokarno in various 
you know, camps all, all across uh, central India and had decided to come and settle there um, in the late 77, 78, you know. So basically, this is just before uh, the left front government comes to power. And Jyoti Basu, who was then the opposition leader, had said that um, they would probably find a space for these Udbastus or, you know, uh, homeless people um, from uh, the other side of uh, West Bengal, from the other side of Bengal, uh, in the Shundorbon. And they had also even talked about perhaps converting this, it was not a forested island, it was a revenue generating island, an island called Morichapi, where you had coconut and tamarisk plantation, so jhaugat, you know, so you had these two kind of uh, trees that had already been planted, the forest had been cleared, there was an embankment, and they had spoken about the probability of having, um, uh, you know, the East uh, Bengali refugees settle in that island. And so, uh, we don't know the exact numbers, but uh, some people say 40,000, 50,000 people actually left various camps and traveled all the way to Morichapi to settle there. And for two years, this is what they did. They built schools, they built dispensaries, they built tube wells, they started basically organizing themselves. But in 79, there was brutal repression. Uh, Shunil Gangopadhyay wrote about it, but very few people, uh, Jugantor had an article, but there isn't much work on that massacre and the number of people killed. So people in these various camps talked about caste and the fact that they were nomoshudros, and this is why this is the way they had been treated. In the Shungarbon, the language wasn't as developed and people kept saying that was the time when we realized that for the government tigers are first class citizens and we are just second class citizens we are just tiger food because the government preferred to kick us out of this island talking about that space being a uh, World Heritage Site and a site that needed to, you know, it was a tiger sanctuary and that tigers needed to uh, be uh, protected. However, if you look at the geography, you know, Morichapi is barely inside uh, the forested islands. So it sort of could have worked, but it was, it was for a lot of people, a huge betrayal. And I felt that the, the islanders felt that this was a betrayal because a lot of their families had come and settled there. So younger people from the islands had gone to Morichapi and had helped the Udbastus from central India to come and you know settle and 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 uh, and make the most of of this space. So for me, really, the old tiger versus the new tiger discourse starts from then, from seventy nine, when for them there was a betrayal from the state. And they, they, they said, you know, it was from then on that the government starting, started to produce tigers in labs. The new tigers were killing machines. They wouldn't listen to our tiger charmers' charms, you know, to the montros we, we, we used to say. Um, so, so it was a very, you know, it was sort of a, a, a kind of order that had been broken 
because of state violence. And some people try to rationalize this and say, you know, I don't really believe in the whole tiger charmer thing. I don't believe that these tigers were any more, uh, you know, um, uh, prone to listening to us than the new tigers or whatever. It is, it is just that in 79, there were so many dead bodies of people who not only died um, shot by the police because the police encircled the island and shot at them, but also perhaps because uh, they died of uh, cholera, dysentery, not being able to avail of fresh water, which they would go and get from the other islands around uh, Morichapi. So because of all these things, you had all these dead bodies that were washed along the islands, the forested islands, and tigers got a, a taste for human flesh. And so this is also why they became, um, so we, you know, I don't really know what I'm just reporting is the way in which the islanders kind of see, um, you know, see something as a huge big betrayal, a time after which they started seeing themselves as subaltern people, people who were not very important for the state. But the kind of um, friendship and the kind of uh, complicity that existed with tigers was broken, you know, with the state suddenly seeing them as superior creatures. And I found that very interesting, right? Oh. Well, thank you, uh, Professor Jelly. For our listeners who are not familiar with what is Morijapi, we will include a link to the developments that had uh, unfolded in Morijapi in 1979 uh, with our podcast. And uh, I would like to now turn towards the bigger elephant in the room, if I may so call it, uh, which is about your research on mental illness in the Sundarbans in the context of climate change. Uh, you've argued in your articles that unnatural deaths keep on shattering families across the Sundarbans, either it be killings by tigers or crocodiles or snakes, or even the most bizarre of them all when some people appear to have died after contracting fear, which they may have, uh, uh, which might be the result of having been in close encounter with an animal. Uh, you sort of make this point that it's more like uh, mental illness that is caused by disaster fatigue because this is not just uh, due to the harshness of the environment where the islanders have to survive for their livelihood, but it's also related to the uh, ever-shifting river embankments and cyclones that keep on hitting these islands every few years after which everything has to be built, sort of rebuilt uh, from scratch. Would you please explain this phenomenon between climate change and mental illness to our listeners? One could say that um, the effects of climate change in the Shundurbun are perhaps the oldest in the world. So for example, the tilting of the Bengal Delta basin right towards the east which caused the western part to increasingly have brackish water. So a lot of people are saying that this might be the reason why the, the, you know, the, the islands which are today inhabited in the Shundurbun and which might have been inhabited uh, in the 14th, 15th century 
weren't in, inhabited anymore in the 17th, 18th centuries, 19th century, okay, when, when the British came, because of the fact that this western portion of the Shundorbon became a lot more brackish than the eastern portion. So, as I was telling you, when I started doing field work, um, you know, a little more than 20 years ago, the only people who had written about the, the place apart from the natural scientists were uh, people like Michael Weiss and uh, Aurobindo Chaudhuri, Dr. Aurobindo Chaudhuri, who had written about mental health in the Shundarbon and how it was affecting people and how there was, you know, there were more people suffering from mental health issues in the Shundarbon region than anywhere else in Bengal. And this has been, as you as you call it, you know, the disaster fatigue. Or this is a place where people have constantly had to cohabit with cyclones, with leaving, losing everything from one day to the next, with, you know, with really knowing that they are the worst off. Okay, which is why if anybody makes any money in the Shundarbon, the first thing they do is to buy a plot of land outside the Shundarbon region. Okay, so Goria has become the new uh, in place or Shonarpur, you know, is full of people who were either school teachers in the Shundarbon, therefore <clears throat> made some money, or even people who were boat owners um, and therefore made a lot of money. They still prefer their kids to work. Uh, a factory worker or a, a, a person who uh, owns a little tea shop rather than uh, risk continuing to be um, a boatman. So when, you know, some of, some of these people are my friends, so I, I keep asking them, why would you prefer your son to be living in this hovel in, uh, you know, in, in the outskirts of Kolkata, rather than living the, the, what seems to be the good life? And he's like, oh, no, you do not understand. We have no good schools here. There are no hospitals. There is so much insecurity. Um, you know, forest officials come and help themselves to, um, any fish that we might have uh, caught. Uh, decoids come and uh, try to loot us. In the Shundarbon, if you are seen as doing better than your neighbors, your, your pawns are poisoned. You're, basically, there is really this ethos of we are in this together. So you live here, you're like everybody else. You do better, you get out. Otherwise, you can't stay. So, you know, it, this is a place which is um at least which was not as as safe as other places so one of the things people have done is to leave the place but i suppose for those who stay on you know the fact that you are having to risk your life going into the forest the fact that you're having to risk your loved ones lives uh into the forest and as a woman you know it's not as if it's only your husband risking his life in the forest. You yourself are going to try and catch um, the tiger prawn spawn in, uh, you know, along the rivers and perhaps get um, attacked by a shark and lose a limb or get uh, killed by a crocodile. So there is this constant fear. And if it's not that, you have cyclones, right? You have cyclones twice a year around uh, April, May, and around October, November. 
these are the two during, you know, just before the monsoon and just after. So in a way, one can understand uh, why it would affect people mentally. And this is not something that I had done when I was doing uh, field work. So I was doing house to house surveys in this village, and I wanted to know how many people had been killed by tigers in those days, because <clears throat> one never knew the true figures. If you had gone into the forest without a valid permit, people would know how your husband usually had died, but you would just tell people that they had had dysentery because if you were caught by government officials or if it was known that he had been killed in the forest by a tiger, you would have to pay a fine, okay? A huge fine because he had gone into the forest without a valid entry permit. So I, I wanted to know the true figures. And this, the only way one could do that is to do a house-to-house -house survey, you know, of the village where I was living. <clears throat> and so I, I wanted to not, you know, ask directly. So I said, you know, did anybody die unnaturally? Because I had heard of suicides and I had heard of fear. So, and, and, and then I realized that there were as many cases of suicide as there had been of uh, people getting killed by tigers. So in those days, in a population of 2000, there had been 25 people in the last 25 years killed of tigers and about 25 or 30 killed of suicide. And a lot of people had died of fear. So people said, unnaturally, do you mean fear? Then they would say, okay, he went to the forest, he saw the tiger and two months later he was dead. Or um, he heard things at night, you know, when he was in the forest. And after that, he wasn't normal anymore. And six months later, he died. And so if ever you had had a nightmare or you complained to anyone that you had been frightened, the Ojha would be called to sort of um, remove that fear from you. And it happened to me once. I just told uh, the, the woman in whose house I lived that I had had these horrible nightmares. And before I knew it, she had called three different Ojhas and taken me to a woman who used to um, have a little temple for me to be, um, for, for exorcists to sort of remove what whatever was causing me distress, right? So, so I was, I was stunned to see the rapidity at which they came and did that. And then I started noticing, for example, my neighbor was very worried because his seven-year-old daughter had seen a snake and had had fever after that. And, and again, she was exorcised so that um, the fear is removed. So, so the fact that fear kills became something that I got interested in. I, I have just written this small chapter, but I am at the moment trying to explore that and see to what extent, you know, um, it, is, it is. So this is why there's this term by Man Barua called eco-psychiatry where people are trying to look at um, how your environment basically causes a, a certain uh, fear, a certain distress of, of your, you know, living conditions. But so this is what I'm now interested in, in this eco-psychiatry. And what I have also been noticing in the last 20 years is that the village where I did fieldwork is not as populated as it used to be. And, you know, in 20 years, you've had a lot of births. And I realized that people had left. A lot of people have left. So I think that 
really just as 20 years ago one could link it up to climate change and to the effects of the environment on people's mental health one really should be looking at that connection and talking about it a lot more you know so so migration people having to leave people having to live in very different circumstances in completely alien spaces very often in in slums you also are moving with the discrimination of caste which as i said when you live in a space which is 95 to 99% scst you are not really discriminated against on on caste grounds. But once you leave that space and suddenly your name of Malo or Mundol at once marks you as a specific kind of person and you have to face the discrimination of others. And I know that some of them, for example, had done very well and had by affidavit changed their surnames to a respectable caste name because they did not want to face the kind of discrimination uh, you know that a name like mal would have had in the context of kolkata so so basically i i i want to connect migration climate change mental health and look at how all of this kind of feeds into each other because i think it is um, you know this is what is creating a lot of uh, trauma a lot of stress uh, thank you, Professor Jale. Uh, just to explain to our listeners, the words SC and ST, they respectively mean scheduled castes and scheduled tribes in the context of India. And usually there is a lot of literature on reservation for these particular categories in terms of jobs and education. Uh, before I move on, we would uh, provide a list of Professor Jale's publications on these different themes that she has spoken about today. Do look it up if you want to follow and read her fascinating research. Last year, a severe cyclone, Amphan, hit the Sundarbans uh, during uh, a raging COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, I would just like to know if you could provide us with any insights on how COVID-19 and Amphan have had uh, impact on mental health in the Sundarbans? I think it has, it has added to the stress, at least initially, but in the Sundarbans as well as in uh, Bangladesh, what I have increasingly heard people say is that COVID is a rich person's disease because they haven't seen the kind of deaths that uh, you know they were expecting when people first talked about uh, COVID um, in, in the village areas. So if I have lost friends in Kolkata, I have lost nobody from uh, rural Bengal due to COVID. So basically there is, you know, uh, the fact that they do not have uh, comorbidities, the fact that they do not have a, a high BP, uh, living outside, not in enclosed AC spaces, um, all of this, um, you know, points to the fact that they have one of the lowest mortality rates, whether it's Bangladesh or the, the kind of rural areas. So more work needs to be done on this. But uh, this is something that has uh, surprised uh, the experts. But what I would like to end with is that really, we need to be giving a lot more thought to our lifestyles and the way we live. Um, because, you know, 
these cyclones are going to increase and what are the ways in which we all all over the world you know you know can can, can make certain choices that are going to perhaps uh, affect less to those who have never had any impact on um, the carbon levels of our uh, environment i think that covid and amphan Cyclones like Amphan, before that you had Bulbul, you had uh, Sidr, you had Isla. So these are going to increase. Huh? The, the waters are warming up all across the Indian Ocean and uh, cyclones are going to become routine. This is what is predicted. Uh, and also what is predicted is that we're going to have more and more of these uh, you know, COVID type uh, diseases. Thank you, Professor Jilly. Uh, just to close off our proceedings for the day, may I now ask you a final question uh, on how to combat the effects of climate change in the Sundarbans, which you have argued resemble floating saucers in the ocean. What exactly is the way ahead and how do you feel as an anthropologist we should tackle this problem? I feel really despondent. I think that after reading The Great Derangement by Amitav Ghosh, there is nothing much we can do but kind of be attentive to what um, some of the most uh, environmentally friendly communities have to say about cohabiting with uh, the natural world. One of the ways in which personally I have tried to do something is um, by joining the Dakshin Foundation in Southern India. So they do amazing work with coastal communities and together with Arati Sridhar from the Dakshin Foundation, we applied for an SSRC grant on the Indian Ocean. And we are looking at the effects of climate change and migration on uh, communities, coastal communities located um, all across countries in the Northern Indian Ocean. So this is one of the ways I feel uh, we, can, we can do something, you know, it is to really remain attentive to what people have to say. And, and I think reparations, I think, uh, you know, increasingly we will have to think of how richer countries um, can, 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 can give reparations to uh, poorer countries that are suffering um, the effects of uh, climate breakdown without really having contributed um, towards that. You know, some people are going to die. You, Delhi, for example, Delhi's population and the population around Delhi are losing 10 years of their lives because of the kind of pollution that um, people have to breathe in. So, um, you know, greater mindfulness at an individual level on what we eat, what we think is important in our lives, uh, the choices we make. Thank you, Professor Jale. I'm sure our listeners are going to love this wonderful podcast where you took us on an amazing journey through the Sundarbans, connecting all the different themes, the relationship between humans, non-humans and contemporary serious issues like climate change and pandemics. That's all we have got time for today. Thank you once again, Professor Anu Jale, and thank you also to my colleague, Rennie Mandeville, who worked behind the scenes and will help us producing and preparing this podcast for circulation in a few weeks' time. That's all for today. 
until then, goodbye and keep listening to the Indian Ocean World podcast. The Indian Ocean World podcast would like to acknowledge the generous support of the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. This podcast series is part of the SSHRC-funded partnership project Appraising Risk Past and Present, interrogating historical data to enhance understanding of environmental crises in the Indian Ocean world. 